Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, I was going to mention at the outset, this is going to be, uh, I think, a little bit shorter sermon. Never trust a preacher when he says that's going to be a shorter sermon. But um, just with Father's Day, spending family time, uh, some of us need to emotionally prepare for Ricky Fowler maybe winning his first major today. Um, but now i got to finish so I can eat not one but two of these on the way home. So uh, that is uh, exciting. Uh, hey, it's great to... Uh, I mean, we've been around, but it's great to be back uh, up here and getting to open God's Word with you, Westside. Uh, uh, see, that's just going to be a distracting thing. Yeah, here you go. There we go. Look at that connection. Love that. Yep. Uh, open to Matthew 3, if you've got your Bibles this morning. Um, it, if you can remember, it, it took me a bit, um, all the way back to November we did a little series going through the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I should have made that a quiz. I should have said, uh, we did a series on, and you would have said, Sermon on the Mount, obviously, because we were here and paying attention. So, yeah, exactly. Um, I thought it would be fun for these next couple weeks, I'm going to speak this week and next, to go back and look at a couple of the scenes, a couple of the episodes that were leading up to that sermon, a couple of little episodes from the life of Jesus that Matthew keys in on, that Matthew pays specific attention to, um, just because of their significance for uh, the way that Matthew wants to tell the story about Jesus and for, uh, of course, our, our own lives as well. So today we're going to take a look at the baptism of Jesus, which happens in Matthew 3, right at the end of Matthew 3. Verses 13 through 17. So we're going to start out just by reading that passage. This comes on the heels of Matthew talking about uh, John the Baptist, who was there to prepare the way for this Messiah figure who was supposed to come. And then in walks Jesus. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, He went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is one of the very few uh, episodes of the life of Jesus that all four gospel writers uh, record. Uh, each of the gospel writers kind of take their own tact. They take their own approach to telling the story of Jesus. Sometimes uh, you'll hear people talk about the gospels as like the biographies of Jesus. And that is true in some sense, I suppose. But 
the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are, they are much more um, selective retellings of the life of Jesus through a particular theological lens. They are, each of the Gospel writers are trying to do something specific with the way that they tell the story of Jesus. They aren't changing the story of Jesus. They're just changing the way that they, they tell it. So, so each of them pick up on different details or different sermons or different parables and, and whatnot. Uh, and that's instructive for us. But it's also super instructive to see the things that get picked up by all four of them at, uh, at the same time. All four of them talk about the baptism of Jesus. Um, Matthew is the only one to include this fun little detail about John being like, whoa, 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 what's happening here? John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And of course, like reading this passage, the question naturally comes up, why did Jesus need to be baptized in the first place? We'll get to that in a second. But I just want to say, it's, an, it, it's a good thing to ask that question because John the Baptist was asking that question. I, I, Jesus is here, all right, I get to get baptized now. Like, and Jesus says, no, 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 you're the one doing the baptize. And John is nothing but confused about the matter. I love that Jesus just comes on the scene. And the first thing he says throws his, faithfulest, his most faithful follower for a loop. I love that Jesus is not super interested in fitting into our boxes. Each of the Gospels have their own like different um, theological emphasis. Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians, and he is very keen to connect the story of Jesus to the story of Israel. And we see that a little bit in this phrase that Jesus uses, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill, play ra'o in in the Greek. Um, To fulfill or to fill up or to bring bring a thing to conclusion, to tie a bow on something in in a way. Um, And throughout Matthew's gospel, he likes to use this word fulfillment to talk about all the ways. You You can barely go more than a paragraph throughout the Gospel of Matthew without finding some sort of allusion, at least, to the way that Jesus is filling up the story of the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. He's tying a bow on all of the, all of the loose ends. And Matthew is keen to help us make all of these little connections. Matthew, Matthew's Gospel account links the story of Israel to the life of of Jesus. You can see this from the very beginning, the, the very first verse of Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus. That word genealogy is Genesis. This is the Genesis of Jesus. This is a new beginning, essentially. That's what Matthew is trying to say. I'm writing a new beginning to this story, or rather Jesus is. And then you get this, of course, the, the genealogy, which fits so much of Israel's story into the life that Jesus lived with a couple of surprising twists and turns there. It's all Israel's story except for a few prominent non-Israelite figures, which, which points forward to the Great Commission at the very end of the book of Matthew. This whole thing, yeah, it, this book is to Jewish Christians, and the whole point is that it's not just for Jewish Christians, it's for 
It's for all. Matthew starts and ends and everything in between emphasizes that piece for us. So even while connecting the story of Jesus to Israel, he's showing it's about something bigger than that. Always has been, always will be. Um, you get the, the little detail uh, that Matthew points out, that Jesus had to be brought out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Jesus has to go with his parents to, uh, to Egypt to escape in, in Matthew chapter 2, and then is brought out of Egypt. And Matthew makes the explicit connection, so that it can be fulfilled out of Egypt, I have called my son. When that, when that prophecy was originally declared, it was looking back at, at Israel being brought out in the Exodus, and now we can see it was also looking forward to Jesus being called out of Egypt as well, because at the time of the prophets, at the time of many of the prophets at least, what Israel needed was a reminder of the first exodus because they needed a new exodus, a return from exile. One of the places that this return from exile is talked about most clearly is in this hinge point in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40 where we get a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make way the way of the Lord, prepare the way. That's Isaiah 40, and that gets attributed to who? John the Baptist, right in this very story. The lead up passage to the baptism of Jesus tells us that there is one coming who is going to lead the very exile that Israel has been looking for all this time. Matthew goes to such great lengths to connect the the person of Jesus and the nation uh, of Israel to fill up that which had been incomplete, that which had not worked out so well. How did Israel do following the ways of God? How did Israel do following the commandments, loving their neighbor? How did they do? Not so great. They, there needed to be some fulfillment of who they were as a nation, and Jesus comes to embody that very fulfillment. It's a beautiful picture that I think Matthew is very interested in us uh, learning well. And then we get to this actual like baptism piece. It's jarring, right? It's jarring to see this picture of Jesus needing to be cleansed, the whole picture of baptism. John was coming to baptize before, to to prepare the way for Jesus. He was doing that to help the nation of Israel repent and get ready to hear the message that they needed to hear, which was going to come on the lips of Jesus. It was coming, it was a a measure of repentance, of of being cleansed and being made right and pure. Why would Jesus then need that? But that's the exact point. Jesus is so interested in identifying with his broken people. He's like, I am going to take on the gunk. I'm going to take on the stuff that needs to be cleansed away. I'm going to identify with you in your lowliest point and show that I need the baptism too. Even though perfect, flawless. Our God gets in the water. And, he, and here's the beautiful picture. that there's Throughout the Old Testament, there's a connection between water and deliverance. If you think about Noah's Ark and the flood, the first great catastrophe that happens uh, yeah, like on land is this 
huge flood. And how does God deliver his people? He keeps them dry, right? He keeps them dry with an ark. When Moses uh, is uh, set down the river throughout the chaos, in the ancient Near East, uh, the in ancient Eastern mythology, water is associated with, with chaos. So it's interesting that God is like trying to keep his people just a little bit away from it. A little bit. So Moses gets this little basket. It's uh, feeble, maybe, but enough to keep him dry, safe amidst the chaos, delivered amongst the water. And then the, like, the paradigm-shifting event of the whole Old Testament, Israel being delivered through what? The Red Sea. Delivered through the water. God says, here is the water. I'm going to dam it up on both sides. And you're going to walk through what? On dry ground. Moving the chaos around because this is the God who is in control. And now his people can walk through on dry ground. He was all about keeping his people safe. Delivering them in in dry land, through dry land. And then the moment that Jesus comes and gets on the scene, he goes, I'm going to be the one to get in the water. I'm going to be the one to take on deliverance once and for all. I'm going to be the one to be cleansed because you need to be cleansed. That is why Jesus needed to be baptized. John the Baptist, in all of his crazy prophetic Wow, whatever was going on there was not even prepared for this this wild statement that Jesus is making. I'm going to take on the waters of chaos and deliver a new people on the other side. This is what it means to fulfill all righteousness. As soon as Jesus was baptized, we get a very beautiful picture here. He went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get the, you get the teaching of the three parts of the Godhead, the the Trinity. You get it throughout uh, the New Testament. Um, It's not super common, though, to see all three characters present and accounted for all at the same time. And this is that moment. This is that inauguration of Jesus' ministry in all parts of who God is there and present. The Holy Spirit is there affirming, blessing. But what I want to take a look at this morning, because it's Father's Day, is what God the Father has to say here. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. It's the first thing that Jesus hears in the gospel. The first thing spoken over him. I think Matthew puts this detail here uh, for a very compelling and important reason. 
before Jesus has taught his first parable or called his first disciple, before he's preached his first sermon, performed his first miracle, before he dies and is raised again, before he's done any of the stuff that we know him to be, before he's done any of the stuff that we worship him for, he's just there, gets in the water at the outset of the ministry. His father says, I'm so happy with you. I'm happy with you. I love you so much. This launches Jesus' ministry. It doesn't, it doesn't put a cap on it. It's not that Jesus has done well and God the Father is like, hey, good work out there. I'm happy with the work that you did. Way to, way to get it in. Way to, way to get it done. Good work. No. Before he's done a single thing on earth, God the Father says, this is the son with whom I am well Please, this is the calling card of the, the way of Jesus, is to know that you are loved. Because this love that God the Father directs at and pours out on Jesus, it is the same love that is true of you and me. I, I love how the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says, the one who makes people holy And the ones who are being made holy are all one family. And that's why Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. Anything that God the Father puts on Jesus is that which is true of you and me. And this love, this happiness, it's not just just a tolerating love like, oh, I'm I'm in a contract with you, so I'm bound to to love you. It's love, but it's love and pleasure. It's like genuine delight. Like God the Father is actually happy with Jesus. And I think some of us need to be reminded from time to time that that God the Father, that Jesus is happy with us. Not just constantly just like, ah, disappointed. Just kind of waiting for us to get our act together. Waiting for us to come around. That's, That's our perspective of us, sure. But I think that ought to be shaped by the fact that God is not sitting around just kind of waiting for us to get our act together. God is eagerly with each morning showing his mercy to us. Before we've done anything, before we've even brushed our teeth, like, I mean, early morning breath, us, is loved deeply and delighted in by Jesus. It's a beautiful picture, right? That same love is extended to us. And it reminds us... The ultimate model for, for fatherhood, too, is connected with compassion. We uh, are in desperate need of a reminder that the fact that fatherhood and compassion go hand in hand. Uh, and this is not always uh, super easy to, to think about for us. For some of us, we come upon a Father's Day and uh, it's harder to celebrate. Um, our dads un- undoubtedly shape our, our lives. And for some of us, that's a really good and beautiful thing. And for some of us, that's a really hard and difficult thing to think about, to talk about. 
I wish that you and I could be having having this conversation over coffee rather than up here. But I feel the need to talk about it from from up here because it's so true, so true of so many of us. There's pain there, and to think about it for too long is to is to take ourselves to kind of a difficult spot, right? But fatherhood and compassion were always meant to go together. And whether you had the best dad or the worst dad, the the love of the Father, the love of God the Father for you is never going to give up. It's never going anywhere. There's a, there's a cool thing in um, in Hebrew. Justin had Justin in Hebrew this uh, this year. Um, the root of a word is made up out of its consonants. Um, and then you can tell if a, if a word has become like a verb or become a noun based on kind of how the vowel pattern goes. Um, and so the, the verb um, to, like, to show compassion in, in the Old Testament is raham. It's a reish and a hate and a meme. Um, but that same root, the rate and the hate and the, and the meme, when they take on the, the vowels of a noun, it's actually it's actually the word womb. It's it's the same the same root gives us to show compassion and womb. It's kind of, kind of an interesting thought. So how are we going to connect fatherhood to this? Well, scripture actually does it for us. I, I think that the two are connected because there's there's something about. Um, one maternal love that just shows us compassion in a in a whole like new light that ought to be and all throughout scripture both old testament and new testament the the writers of scripture connect the love of god to maternal love as well like they show us how god is a, a loving mother to us um but also the connection between compassion and, and the womb reminds us that, that compassion is always a visceral, embodied experience. It's not just some idea that works in a textbook somewhere. It's not just some statement on the pages of Scripture. Rather, it's an embodied act. And in Psalm 103, we get this beautiful, uh, this beautiful line that says, As a father, as an er- earthly father, shows compassion for his children. So the Lord shows compassion for us. The model of God's love for his people is the same thing that fathers here today are supposed to embody for the people around them. This is the ultimate metric of what it is to be a good dad. It's not paychecks. It's not physical strength. It's not any of the stupid things that we get in our heads, sorry. It's not any of the things that we get in our heads because of cultural definitions of what a man is or whatever. Like, this is the ultimate metric. Are you a compassionate person? This is, of course, true for every single one of us, but there's a particular, uh, I think, the reminder towards the dads in the room that's particularly... uh, Helpful. I, I want to celebrate dads today, but also encourage us to be to be men who are moving on the move towards a more compassionate life every single day. That is what we are called to do. That is the ultimate metric. If we don't get that right, nothing else matters. We could spend our lives trying to measure up in all of these other areas. And if we don't get the compassion right, it just it doesn't count. But we get this model. From the all throughout Scripture, the Father 
shows compassion for his children. He shows compassion for Jesus here. It, it's a beautiful thing. So what, what I just want us to ask, simply ask this morning, is what are you going to do with the love of God this week? This is the truest thing about you and me, that God loves you very much. Not tolerating, not just kind of sitting around twiddling thumbs, just wishing we would get our act together. But what are you going to do with the love of God this week? Are you going to leave it in a sermon on a Sunday morning and try to get through your week just as we normally do? And then maybe come back next Sunday. That'd be a good thing to do. But are we going to leave it here? Are we going to leave it at a distance on the pages of Scripture? Are we going to leave it as a distant idea? Or are we going to go get it? I love the way Ecclesiastes says his mercies are new. Lamentation says his mercies are new every single morning. Let's go get them. Let's go get them. Let's go live in the way of God's love because he's there and pouring it out. And we make so much about wanting to be people of love towards others. Absolutely, we should. But where is that love going to come from if not from God himself? I don't have it in me to be a good lover of neighbor this week. I don't have it in me. But that love that flows from God through the Spirit to us is meant to flow out. Are we going to leave it on the page or go after it? Are we going to put ourselves in the way of the places that we know that God's love is? Are we going to spend time in Scripture, spend time in fellowship, spend time in prayer, spend time serving? Are we going to do that? Uh, I had a, a picture to, to share here. Uh, I'm sorry, we went to Iceland and I like... I'm gonna have like I'm gonna have endless sermon illustrations from Iceland. It was just kind of it was a mindless it was no it was a mind blowing thing. It was a mind blowing thing, not mindless. It was a mind blowing experience being in uh, in Iceland for a few days recently. Um, you'll see here. So that's Skagafoss, which is just like one of the most like iconic uh, waterfalls on the south coast uh, of Iceland. You'll notice here that we are decked out. Uh, first of all, I got binoculars because birding always the little white little white dots up there are fulmars, they're seabirds. They nest in the, in the cliffs. That's important for this sermon. Um, <laughs> but you notice we are uh, one of the things we read about before going to Iceland is like whether it's raining or not, you're going to need rain gear. We're like, okay, whatever. But it turns out it's because of the waterfalls. The waterfalls are a bit much. They're a bit extra in in Iceland. You can uh, you can get absolutely drenched on a perfectly dry day just by going and seeing a bunch of waterfalls. But I love it. We need a rain gear to get close to to the source. You could see this waterfall from over a mile away. We could see it from the highway, and it was already like kind of mind-blowing. Like, wow, what a beautiful thing. But what was fun is that we could, because we had our rain gear on, I suppose we don't need it, you, but yeah, we, we, we took it. You could walk up here, walk further and further and further up here and just kind of stand in the residual mist and get a sense. When you, when you stand in the residual mist of a waterfall that magnificent, you start to get a sense for the force, the power, the oomph, the gusto of that particular and then when you're back further away, you have a sense of what it was like up close. And so many of us take the highway view, right? We take the highway view of the love of God and we go, oh, that's nice over there. That's a good view. 
I'm happy that that is there. And then we just keep on driving. And we never get prepared. And we never get ourselves closer and let ourselves just be overwhelmed by, absolutely drenched by the full force. This is kind of like the love of God because like if we actually stood under it and took it in its full force, like I don't think we could actually survive. Like I don't think we could actually live if we actually knew the full love of God towards us. Well, what are you going to do this week to stand in the residual mist? To stand in the love of God. All those little places, those little moments that stitch together our days, those little in-betweens. How are we going to be people whose lives are oriented around compassion if we don't let the compassion of God first just wave over us, wave after wave after wave come flowing over us? We're going to sing a song here to end, and I'm going to invite the, invite the band back up. Our, our prayer team is going to be over here. And if, if there's something like in your heart, in your mind, where you're just like, I, there's something standing between me and, and the love of God. There's something that I feel like is a barrier right now. Or there's just something I need to, to do. If there's something that you want to pray for, just come up and, and, and chat with our prayer team. They, they would love to uh, talk with you about that and pray for you. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we, as we close, and we're going to sing together. Lord, we um, are so quick to uh, forget your compassion towards us and to get caught up with uh, others' views of ourselves, with our own views of ourselves, and to not remember that it is your love that is first and foremost the truest thing about us when we wake, when we go to sleep, and every moment in between. Um, so would you help us craft lives this week uh, to be a little more attentive to, attuned to that love, so that we could then go show that love to others. In Jesus' name.